This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 245th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of 2018's few true movie stars in the sense that the general public consistently buys tickets to movies in which she stars. She's a woman who broke into the biz doing comedy on the TV series Gilmore Girls for the WB and Mike and Molly for CBS. She became an A-lister as a result of Bridesmaids, the game-changing comedy blockbuster for which her scene-stealing performance was recognized with the Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination. And she continues to dazzle with her ability to do seemingly anything, from sending up Trump press secretary Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live to, most recently, leading a dramatic film, Mari Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me?, in which she portrays the troubled New York writer Lee Israel. I'm talking, of course, about the great Melissa McCarthy. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, the 48-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, including the source of her early self-esteem and confidence— the crazy way in which she wound up performing stand-up and then improvisational comedy, why she almost walked away from show business just before landing Gilmore Girls, how the blockbuster success of Bridesmaids and an Emmy win for Mike and Molly within just a few months of each other exploded her career, and what the stories are behind her most well-received films, many of them comedies directed by her husband, Ben Falcone, or Paul Feig, and now, with Can You Ever Forgive Me?, a drama or at least the Dramedy, which premiered at September's Toronto International Film Festival, opened in theaters on Friday, and, based on the early response to it, could well result in her second Oscar nomination. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my friend and hands-down favorite Ivana in the world, Ivana Kirkbride, (laughs) an expert and thought leader in the -the over-the-top video space, who, over the course of her distinguished career, has helped to guide the paths of YouTube, Verizon streaming service Go90, and a number of other places in between. Ivana, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. You graduated from the University of Virginia with a bachelor's degree in science with a concentration in finance 20 years ago. At that time, I don't think you were probably imagining specifically streaming services and things of that nature. So what did you imagine you would be doing with the rest of your life? Attending an undergraduate business school in Virginia, thought I was going to come out and do banking, finance, right? And streaming video didn't even exist back then. And it was all about how do you bring digital to like the outdoor advertising Mm -hmm. space. So I noticed uh, in your elevator, (laughs) you have one of those digital flat panel screens. That was actually one of my portfolio companies at the private equity fund that I used to work at. It's called Captivate. Wow. I mean, but that's how early we were in digital media. Yes. And that was really the first wave of the of the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. And so I think what was interesting back then is there was a huge boom around the first wave of the dot-coms. You know, toys.com, Expedia.com, like everything. And then all of a sudden it came to a screeching halt in March of 2000. Right. 
And it's interesting because that cycle, like you'll see in the video, especially in the digital media mm -hmm. space quite a bit as well, which is you have these like great times of expansion in the market where there's so much new innovation happening. Mm -hmm. And then every five years, it sort of cycles down. Right. So was it the bust of the dot-com era that led you into new media specifically for the first time? Because it seems like from very early on, whether at that venture capital firm that you mentioned or then as the founder of your own advisory company and different things along the way, it seems like new media, emerging technology, those were always a, a through line. Yeah, I mean, I, I always focused in sort of that cutting edge around telecom, media, and technology. And back then, there was a company called The Feed Room. It was like the first video startup. And I just remember we were we were following how digital disruption was creating all these great ecosystems and net new markets. And when I was coming out of, I was working at a place called ABS Capital Partners and then Advent International. And coming out of that experience, really wanted to be a part of building something. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started to explore being on the other side of the table and going to a startup. And that actually led me to a startup called Generate. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it was almost like a predecessor to what, what we call the MCN model mm -hmm. and the YouTube ecosystem. And it was really thinking through the next digital studio. And what I thought was really interesting in that time, MySpace was the largest video platform. Oh, my God. Wow. Google had just bought YouTube. And so, I mean, that's how early days it was. Right. And so you had a lot of these network chiefs leaving their posts from Disney and Warner Brothers, et cetera. And they were sort of seeing the future in digital and the disruption that was happening there. Right. And so a lot of them created these next-gen digital studios. So the one that I went to was called Generate, you know, founded by this guy, Jordan Levin. Mm -hmm. He's from the WB. And we really, you know, embarked upon thinking through what does a studio model look like in sort of this net new technology landscape mm -hmm. where you can deliver seamlessly video content to anyone, anywhere, at any time and on any platform? But at that time, was it still a concern, the, the ability to both store large amounts of content and transmit it high speed? When did that become less of a problem? You're right. So there was always the, the latency issue with, you know, making sure that that experience was pristine mm -hmm. and, and accessible. And so that business model, the digital studio model, was probably seven to 10 years too early. Mm -hmm. Again, the same thing that I saw back in the first wave of the dot com, there's this incredible wave of expansion. And so you had people experimenting. But back then it was advertisers were just sort of dabbling in digital, mm -hmm. but they weren't really shifting their television budgets over into digital because it was all experimentation. Right. So a great example of that was Mark Burnett does a $50 million sponsorship with AOL and a couple of brands against an event called Gold Rush. It was this huge, like, interactive video play. People could basically find clues all over the country and then play on this game on AOL. Okay. And it was a really big, bold move, but because it was so big, and, and to your point, there wasn't really like the technology there just to really fully support it, mm -hmm. it sort of floundered. Mm -hmm. And that's when people started to pull out because they could see like the proof wasn't in the pudding yet. Yeah, the infrastructure wasn't ready yet. Yeah, and so I think there were a couple of things that led to you know a big pull out. You know, MySpace was starting to lose audience mm -hmm. as well. And then you also had in the background, 
all of social networking is starting right. to emerge. Right. And you had Facebook coming onto the scene. Friendster and Buddy TV had already been out there, but you know, you, you had some some big platforms that were starting to emerge. So I think what was interesting about that time when the market started to contract mm-hmm. because of like all the things that you're saying, mm-hmm. we started to see new opportunities and new entrants start to emerge. So how in 2011, I guess, do you then end up going into the belly of the beast at YouTube, where it was, I guess your role evolved over over your five years there. When I went to YouTube, it sort of coincided with when Robert Kinsel was coming on board there, and and he was thinking through a model around originals, and it was supposed to be sort of like a small experiment around twenty channels, and at one point we were going to look at really niche categories. But what YouTube was going through at that time was trying to transform that platform from a single video experience mm-hmm. to thinking through, you know, what if YouTube became like a next gen MSO. And how can they power channel brands or network brands of tomorrow? So in the same way, like what Liberty and Cable did back in the 80s, mm-hmm. is, is there that, that sort of opportunity for YouTube? Mm-hmm. And I think what was really interesting about that period of time is, number one, there was so much opportunity and promise and there was, you know, big picture thinking. And what was happening is people were discovering YouTube videos through like a single URL they would share with mm-hmm. you. And so they would come in, watch a video, most likely like cats, babies, or skateboard <laughs> fails. And then they would go on, you know, doing email or going to another site. Mm-hmm. So the challenge was how do we get people to sort of come to YouTube and stay and really fall in love with a, like an incredible video watch experience and discover content that they never knew existed, mm-hmm. but we know that they'll love. And what channels means is that if you go there for a cat video, you will be able to stumble upon Petsami, which okay. was one of <laughs> the, which was actually one of the, right. because there were so many animal videos on YouTube, we actually launched to pet networks. Okay. Yeah. And, and so those were the kinds of channels that you were developing, cultivating in the way it sounds like the most famous kind of formula like that is now Netflix. You go on Netflix and you watch a documentary about true crime, they're going to recommend 10 more that you should check out. Is that kind of what you guys were doing? Yeah. At that point in time, it was that, but on a network brand or channel scale. Mm-hmm. So so what we were doing is we, we looked at where we saw core audiences really growing and then where we saw content categories where we could win. Mm-hmm. And what that led to was, you know, 16 different categories we were sourcing for basically like our version of Food Network, our version of HGTV, et cetera. And then also doubling down into some demos. But this would mean just curating content that was already on YouTube or going out and generating content for those audiences. Yeah, so we we went out to market and we basically sourced producers, directors, former cable network operators to basically start their own network brand on YouTube. And so that led to things like Awesomeness TV, the YouTube version of Nickelodeon. It led to things like John Chu actually did this amazing dance channel for us called this, D-Studio. Wow, this is who's now recently made Crazy Rich Asians. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And what was great about funded channels is we, were, we created an entire ecosystem. It funded businesses, mm-hmm. it funded brands. Pharrell Williams still uses the YouTube funded channel brand that we did together, which is I Am Other. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see how like creating an entire market, the impact and the outcome of that yeah, and how it has sustained even today. Then your role at YouTube evolved over that period. What was the next thing that happened there? There was a shift happening at YouTube in terms of like 
does it continue to be a social video platform or are we really going to take a bet and, and convert it into a media company and media entity? And as part of that, I was part of a founding team that looked at starting YouTube originals. And what we started to look, look at was instead of funding channels, let's fund shows. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? This was your first foray into actual content creation, right? With the funded channels, we were doing content creation. But yeah, but this was this was the first foray into real original programming and, and production. What was interesting there is we started to look at how do we take what works on YouTube, which is predominantly, you know, YouTubers and, mm-hmm. and influencers, and have them packaged up in, you know, premium programming. And mm-hmm. what does that look like? And can you explain for the listener, what when you say premium programming, what do you mean? So we started to look at, you know, episodic serialized content, which historically on YouTube, you don't find. No. You, you don't go to YouTube to watch, you know, Game of Thrones right. or, right. you know, uh, House Cards. And so we needed to sort of transition our audience there. And what we ended up doing was like reimagining the the packaging model, mm-hmm. right? The, your traditional television packaging model. How do we reimagine that for YouTube? And so one thing that we did was we took like the best of talent on YouTube and we would just make sure that we were packaging them with the right auspice. Mm-hmm. So by way of example, we would have the Fine Brothers doing a scripted comedy with Todd Lieberman and David Hoberman. Mm-hmm. Or we'd have PewDiePie, who at the time yes. was the number one influencer, and have him work with Robert Kirkman in terms of producing a reality series mm-hmm. all around zombies and monsters. <laughs> so that was a really great foray into how we were thinking about originals. And then right. also, that's when we started to think through pay models at YouTube as well. So you Right, because you have to monetize all this stuff at that point. You're putting a lot in, but how are we going to actually turn a profit on this or, or make some money off of it at least? Yeah, or you know, what is this content driving towards, right? right. So we were playing around with also YouTube Red and YouTube TV at that time and, and sort of how the originals would play into those models. What is Vessel and how did that then take you away from YouTube? Vessel was an amazing experience. The team there was the the former team that founded and created Hulu. It was Jason Kyler and um, Richard Tom who were the co-founders of that mm-hmm. company. And Vessel was an, an amazing experience because they were really trying to think through an innovative business model. They were thinking through do you apply a traditional library model on YouTube content? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so taking Rhett and Link and other big YouTubers and having a window on mm-hmm, their content mm-hmm. on another platform, and would people be willing to pay for that? This was where this idea of micro-windowing came about. Like, what is micro-windowing? This is definitely where the concept of micro-windowing came from. We were experimenting with a model where, you know, is there a willingness to pay with customers and users around being able to see content one to seven days before you could watch it on another platform. Mm-hmm. That, I think, can work for certain types of content. Mm-hmm. I think the big key takeaway from Vessel is it may not work for influencer content mm-hmm. where it's just personalities talking to a screen. Mm-hmm. So in May 2015, something happened that I guess started a road that led to your next gig eventually, which was... Verizon, again, in May 2015, acquired AOL and its digital assets, including the Huffington Post, for $4.4 billion. In October 2015, Verizon then launched Go90, a streaming service of its own. And in July 2016, you became Go90's chief content officer. I guess that's a job that maybe 
most immediately people associate with Ted Sarandos or something, the person, right, that is going to have to have the vision of what this is going to be. Can you explain how Go90 work just logistically? You know, you have your Verizon customers that have their phones and it's how they would use it. And then also what drew you to it? Go90 was a mobile video service delivered by Verizon. However, what most people didn't realize is regardless of who your carrier was, whether it was AT&T, Sprint, or T-Mobile, you had access to this free video app. And what it housed was 25 to 30,000 hours of live TV and sports, so the best of MTV, Discovery, Scripps, NFL, NBA, and soccer. And then it also, in addition to that, had 1,500 hours of exclusive originals. So it it was almost like your cable bundle, Mm -hmm. but delivered to you through mobile. For free. For free. And at the time, and just to go back to 2015, Mm -hmm. that was when you had a lot of these subscription video on-demand services starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. And so it was the time of Comcast launching uh, Watchable Mm -hmm. and Broadway Video and NBC doing CISO. And and so, you know, you had a lot of people experimenting Mm -hmm. in these kinds of uh, mobile video apps. With the idea that everybody's buried in their phone all the time, let's capture their attention. Exactly. And that the the mobile content and media consumer is not being super served. Mm-hmm. And so how do we deliver on that? And when you look at the power of Verizon's 160 million wireless subscribers and mobile users, you know, combining that power with great content, like, can we create a winning position? Mm-hmm. And it was really struggling to sort of find its, its space mm-hmm. in the market. And if you really looked at it, it was because it looked like a general cable bundle. Mm -hmm. It was everything to everyone, Mm -hmm. which meant that it really meant nothing to no one. Mm -hmm. So what I went in there to do was to really create a vision and a content strategy and branding around what it could be. And so what we ended up finding just through user data and market insights was that we really had an audience around sports and originals. Mm So we decided to double down in that, and, and we ended up creating networks. Mm-hmm. And like, again, like the YouTube channels that you'd been a part of. Now there were like eight networks or something. At one point later, you consolidated, but that was the same idea that just drive people into sort of a little ecosystem of content? So with, with YouTube, it was more about how do we create an ecosystem of network brands and you know sort of create our own sort of version of a cable environment Mm -hmm. and how do you have network brands that people can identify with and then start to fall in love with the original programming and content there. Go90 was actually the opposite problem. (laughs) There There was so much content there that it was almost like the tyranny of choice. It was hard to really discover anything that you could really fall in love with. And it actually, when I went in, I think there were 64 different, you know, types of playlists for you to explore, but everything was manually placed Uh there and none of it was algorithmic. So going back to your Netflix Uh example, when you think about what is so great about that Netflix experience is like you watch one thing and say, you know, for me, it was always like I came in to watch The Ring. Uh And after I watched The Ring, Netflix, because of that algorithm and the recommendation engine served to me. 2,000 other Japanese horror movies Mm -hmm. I had never heard of, Mm -hmm. but I definitely watched for hours. And so we needed to shift Go90 from just all manual editorial because no one human can predict what you're going to love, what I'm going to love, what my preferences and tastes are, and shift that to more algorithmic programming. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, we really needed to make it a simple, beautiful experience. Mm -hmm. And so we, we simplified it from 64 to... At one point, it was like 16 or eight networks, just down to four. Yeah. 
And the four networks that we launched were like our version of ABC Family and what the mm-hmm. WB used to be mm-hmm. back in the day. Go 90XO is all scripted originals for young female millennials. Go 90 Zone, which is where all our sports content, like live sports and originals lived. Mm-hmm. Go 90 Saga, which was like our version of the sci-fi network. Right. And Go90 Session, which was basically our, our version of, it's like if Vice and Complex had a baby, that's mm-hmm. what that mm-hmm. art and culture network would be. And all of that was driven based off of what we were seeing in terms of what users were gravitating to and what type of audience we had. And it wasn't it wasn't led by what we prescriptively were, were thinking would be good for the user. So as you're honing the service, you're also looking for new types of content that might bring in new audiences. What led you about maybe a year and a half ago to a animated short film of all things, basically produced by and derived from the retirement poem of Kobe Bryant. This was called Dear Basketball, and it was through that that we first met. I guess I'm curious just how you guys became involved with that, because that must have been one of your bigger content acquisitions for the service, right? Yeah. If you think about short form content, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we were defining as episodes that are anywhere from 10 minutes in length or less, Mm -hmm. you have YouTube, Facebook, all of social media really super serving that audience. And that short form experience is often a lean forward experience. Like you, you, the user are are just trying to discover more and more Mm -hmm. around information and videos that you want to watch. On the other end of the spectrum, you have long form content, which is 30 minutes in length per episode or more. And what was interesting about what we were finding in terms of what users were doing with long form is you're not going to binge watch Game of Thrones during the week. You're going to save it for the weekend when you have time because it's a huge investment of time. Mm-hmm. And we were finding that, you know, when it comes to the streaming video providers, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, who had you know, more television format like shows and all of broadcast and cable who are doing more appointment based viewing. Mm -hmm. So you have to tune in to watch. We found that a lot of those folks were saving that for the weekend. However, users still have this this need state around being satisfied around binge watching, but there's nothing serving that during the week, Monday through Friday. So when you think about what we were calling premium midform, a format where episodes are anywhere from like five to 22 minutes in length, Mm -hmm. you can actually super serve and meet that need. And so what that means is you basically can binge watch an entire season arc in in an hour, 90 minutes. Well, I guess an example of a similar thing that was, that I guess fits that description was something that started on Crackle and has later been absorbed by Netflix, which is this comedians in cars getting coffee Every episode, six to 23 minutes, and people just plow through those. Yeah, and it's it's incredibly satisfying to be able to just plow through an entire season yeah. and, like, only an hour has passed by. Right. And so how it relates to Dear Basketball is, so we really wanted to own that premium mid-form space where we could super serve mobile audiences in that way. And so when we started to apply that from episodic content to to feature formats, that's where we discovered Dear Basketball. It's an animated short. And we felt like that could be our foray into an entire film slate. And that's how we met. Yes. There were just so many great things happening there. You know, the, the artistry from Glenn Keane, the heartfelt story from Kobe, and then the music score from John mm-hmm. Williams. It just seemed like the best trifecta to really get behind. And it was, it's got to have been one of the bigger moments of the Go90 era for you to have 
been up in that skybox at the Staples Center at halftime on the night that they were retiring Kobe's jersey, and you have tens of thousands of people first watching on the Jumbotron this film of yours now from Go90 Deer Basketball. So I think that and then probably the Oscar nomination and the Oscar win, those have to be highlights as you, you know, when 50 years from now you look back at that time in your life, right? Yeah, it is definitely on the bucket list. The first ever Oscar for an ad-supported video on demand platform. We never in our wildest dreams thought we would even get a nomination (laughs) for an Oscar. Right. And so, you know, the fact that we made it to the short list was amazing. And then once we advanced to a nomination, we're like, you know what? We can just be happy with this. Right. Like we never thought it would it would actually get to a win. And when it did, I got to say, one of the best moments in my life was hearing Kobe thank Verizon on stage. Yep. It yep. was amazing. Yep. In some ways, when, you know, when we look at these other streaming services that people know about, like a Netflix or an Amazon, it seems like there's been one show or one piece of programming that draws people in and then they, you know, both discover what else is there and it creates a hunger for new stuff. For Netflix, it was House of Cards. For Amazon, I guess, Transparent. Take us from Oscar night forward for Go90, because on the one hand, it seems like that was a obviously a hugely positive thing, but there are innate challenges to the model of just of what you guys were trying to do, right? Yeah. So if, you know, the Oscar win was the pinnacle, (laughs) (laughs) the rest is history. I think the market has changed pretty dramatically. And, you know, when you when you look at all the consolidation that's happening with, all you know, with these media conglomerates, it changes sort of how you can win in the market. And I think with Go90, it definitely had great ambition, and it it was a strategy that was set in place before we got there, Mm -hmm. but had great ambition to sort of become your network provider of choice. At the end of the day, there is almost like an arms race around content spend. I think, you know, they were talking about it at the Emmys, right? So Netflix now spending $8 billion in content. Per year. Per year. (laughs) And spending hundreds of millions of dollars to exclusively have the rights to Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes or whoever. Now everybody's doing, Warner Brothers is doing with Greg Berlanti. Like you're saying, it's it's become a full-on arms race. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at the cost to compete in that arms race, I think it, it just, it becomes a really expensive value proposition. And, you know, for Go90, it was, it was an ad supported on-demand platform. It wasn't a subscription platform. Mm -hmm. And for being in in that kind of realm of content mm-hmm. spend, that business model isn't going to work. Ultimately, Go90 was folded into this Oath division, which also included Yahoo, AOL, Huffington, but just basically driving video to other parts of the parent company, I guess. As that's moved on, I guess the question is, do you still believe in the idea of short form or, as you were saying, premium mid-form content? Do you think that that is the direction we're going? There are some very smart people. It seems like Jeffrey Katzenberg sold off DreamWorks Animation and decided this is where he wants to focus. And our attention spans don't seem to be getting any longer, longer here in, <laughs> in these these days. So even if it didn't fully pan out the way that everyone hoped with Go90, is that still where you would put your chips for the future? I think one thing to, to think about 
as well is not just what's working here in, in the U.S., but also what's working outside of the U.S. and globally. And I think what was really interesting about when we first introduced Premium Midform in 2017 at MIP was when I went back there in 2018, I started to get pitches mm-hmm. around Premium Midform. And that was in less than a year, you now have the rest of the globe really embracing this format that is sort of super serving audiences between short form and long form. So I think there's a question mark of what's going to work here. But I think when you look at the rest of the world, they're starting to embrace a whole new way of storytelling. And I often say no matter where we land and whether it's, you know, back to a bundle or the unbundling of the bundle, Mm We're just in this amazing point in time of, of storytelling, and it is definitely the the golden age of, of TV, but also the golden age of content in general. So I, I think there's just a lot of further opportunity to sort of innovate and explore. Thank you for guiding us through our crazy new media world. For a lot of us, it's something we kind of observe from afar and have a little vague idea of what's going on, but you have been in the thick of it for the last... 20 years. So I really appreciate your insight. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And now for my interview with Melissa McCarthy. Thank you so much for doing this. And I I guess we should just say that uh, we have a a wedding or something occurring in the background. So that's that's just my band outside, guys. That's my band I'm going to jam with a little bit later. Right. They they follow you everywhere. (laughs) Well, we always begin with just a a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Plainfield, Illinois. My mom worked for World Book Encyclopedia and then she worked at First Midwest Bank Mm -hmm. as a secretary. And my dad worked for the Belt Railway, and he was an arbitrator. And were there siblings? I have one. I have a three-year-old sister. She's three years older than me. <laughs> um, yeah, they my, waited a My seventy-two-year-old mom just had a baby three years ago. It's kind of a miracle. Right. She's three years older right. than me. I'm sorry, this dazzling music yeah, this uh, was good. rattling me. Her name's Margie, yes. and she lives in Colorado. And as She's a, a writer. kid, were you? Uh, class clown were you the person that was making people laugh and around you or when did that emerge maybe i thought i was (laughs) i I would hate to have a real snapshot of what was really going on i was very chatty Mm -hmm. so i would finish my work really quickly just Mm -hmm. because i kind of wanted to have a social hour yes um which probably drove my teachers insane um, not like, you know, I wasn't like nuts or right. disruptive, but I just wanted, they were like, yeah, she always gets her work done really quickly right. and then wants to be like, so what's going on? <laughs> well, um, I yeah. heard it got a little off the rails after you started getting more into your teens. I'm reading about basically you were a delinquent, drinking, stealing, rebelling. Wait a minute. Is this, who's, uh, who's saying this? this I want a, a name. A, a, they've insisted on anonymity, but is that true? What was that about? Um, sure. I mean, I was, you know, were there some wine coolers, guys, <laughs> and some strawberry wine? Was I wearing my hair like Robert Smith? I, I stand by all these decisions to this day. I'm still right. like, he had great hair. <laughs> He had great hair, and at the time I had the volume, I could pull it off. I did steal a chunky. Okay. I did steal a chunky once. Yeah, I was a bit of a delinquent, but like a lame one. What was that driven by, do you think? I think just boredom. I mean, I was in a little town. I lived on a farm, and all I dreamed, I was like, I want to go to New York City. And, you know, I remember my parents saying, you don't know what New York City is. What what would be the draw? And I was like, exactly. It was really just the the allure of something different. Yeah, something different. 
going somewhere where there's so many different people right. and I mean everything was so I knew everyone I was right. at the same group of kids since right. you know kindergarten on and just the thought of people you know artists and people doing this and there's musicians and I just you know it was like I thought New York was going to be like one constant episode of fame <laughs> and kind of it didn't disappoint me when I moved there at 20 I was like this is everything I hoped it would be well so what was it that as you're coming out of high school but before that move at 20 what did you imagine your future would involve I thought I would do something with women's clothing when I first I went down to southern Illinois because that's where I went to school because I wanted to go to FIT in New York and my parents said no you'll kill yourself fashion institute of, yes yes of technology. technology yeah but I, did, I didn't give them a lot of good reasons to think I should be going to New York City at 18 years old I wasn't <laughs> the most responsible so I went to SIU and met with a, a counselor and said I want to do dysfunctional art and fashion mm -hmm. I want a double major and he was like that's not a real thing and I'm like oh it is well then fine art and fashion right I had someone who just said, you can't do that. Just take the basic classes. And I was so crushed because I really thought that you were going to go to college. I'm like, I'm probably going to be in writing groups and discussions right. and we're going to sketch things. <laughs> and I just thought it was going to be this like salon right. that I've probably seen in some movie somewhere. Right, right. Then I just had somebody that was like, just take math, English. And, and I was like, wait, what about, what about all these like amazing classes? And he was like, do them later if you ever get to them. Right. And I just remember leaving and being crushed. This is after like what, a year or two in this there? This is after 12 years of Catholic school with nuns. I really wanted to like... Branch out. Branch out. Yeah. And, and I was actually excited for it. So I don't think I had the wherewithal then to... I could have just gone and talked to somebody else. But right. I thought, well, they've said it. It was That's kind of it. like, don't question the nuns or authority. <laughs> so I just went and kind of moped around campus right. for a while. So what was it that motivated the move at 20 to New York. And also, if you can just maybe, <laughs> I've read some things, I want to make sure they're correct, but just yeah. set the scene. You got there with how much money and into what living situation? Oh, well, I, I moved at 20 to New York City because my best friend at the time, Brian Atwood, that designed shoes now, came to visit me in Boulder, Colorado mm -hmm. and said, what are you doing here? Why are you here? I'm like, not sure. <laughs> So like two days later, I was like, I'm moving to New York. I had a VW bug that I just, because I didn't know any better, I was like, hey, Margie, can you sell that for me? Which meant like 500 yeah. people coming to visit and bargaining and stuff. I just left it with my sister. I moved to New York with, by the t when I got to LaGuardia, I had 35 bucks. <laughs> And then had to get into the city. And I'd moved there with, into, you know, Brian said, you can stay with me. I think it was in Murray Hill. Yeah. Got up to, you know, the address that Brian had given me. And the second the door opened, I was like, wait, <laughs> what's happening? And a girl came out of the bedroom and said, who the hell are you? And I realized he was staying on someone's couch. Uh -huh. And I had moved all the way across country and she was not informed that I was coming, which uh -huh. is only something you do at like 20. Uh -huh. That you're like, oh, did I forget to tell you my friend's moving in uh -huh. with us? And she's like, what? <laughs> Jesus. So she was not into that. Right. So I slept on the floor. He slept on the couch. You know, we were splitting a bagel a day just because I was like, uh, until I get a job, I'm down to like 50 cents a day yeah. and that's going to run out right. real soon. And then finally, we did get our first apartment, which was 
above Joe Allen's on 46th Street. Is the legend true, though, that you literally you get there and on day one you are with no prior particular interest or experience whatsoever with stand-up? You just, what happened? We went to, was it Christides? We were somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we were in line and Brian grabbed a village voice. This is the day you have arrived. Yeah, that's the night I arrived. Yeah. He found a village voice, was looking through the back, and he said, you're going to do stand-up. And again, I said, I think the good thing about being 20 is you're, you're at least myself, yeah. I was so dingy that I was like, all right. <laughs> like, how hard can it be? Like, Why did he say it? What, what do you think made him say that? Um, we'd always kind of talked about this thing called, like, the Miss Why show. And I think we would go out and I would tell, you know, I didn't really tell jokes. I just told weird, long <laughs> stories. And I kind of assumed other characters. And, you know, it was just like a way to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. And it was just dumb. And he thought, he's like, you should do it. You're here now, you should do it. And I didn't know enough to even know how much prep should go into that, that you should write something, for God's (laughs) sakes. I mean, I guess ignorance is bliss or stupidity is bliss. I don't know. But we went to, I think, Stand Up New York the next night. They had an open mic. And I went up and, you know, I had a big wig on and this crazy, like, silver outfit and... That's because there was this already, this existing persona, Miss Y? Or yeah. What, and that was from just you guys messing around? I grew up as Missy, oh, and so okay. no one no one ever called me Melissa until I went to college. Okay. Someone in college, a girl that we were friends with, who was very eccentric, said, I, I just, she only knew me by Melissa. And she was like, I'm very offended by Missy. Because <laughs> I could never call someone Miss, Missy, I will call you Miss Y. <laughs> and weirdly, that stuck. that stuck. So through college, a lot of people called me Miss Y. Right. So when I went on, it's, I guess, a telling sign I didn't want to go on as myself. <laughs> I had nothing to say as me. Right. I was like, I don't know what I would talk about, right. but I can take on a character and have all right. sorts of stories and opinions. But I had none of my own. And so I went on and did that, and I just told strange stories about having so much money and what that was like in New York. And just really, I think what in initially seemed like I was complimenting myself mm-hmm. until like it just kept getting more extreme. And then I think people finally caught on that it was all bullshit. Yes. And then they were like, <laughs> oh, okay. And I remember that first, and I'm sure it was terrible, but I do remember that first thing of where I'm like, uh-oh. Maybe I should have prepared for this, but I just kept going because I was like, well, it'll work or it won't. Like, and it I just kind like of. it was going over okay. And once the turn happened where I knew that they all knew I was kidding, right. and the, the nervousness of like those few seconds where I'm like, I think they hate me. Right. I think they think I'm serious. Right. And then I started talking about being so tall and like that. I just started <laughs> saying more and more, and I was just improvising all right. of it because I hadn't thought about right, it right, until right. I got up on stage, which seems incredibly bizarre now because I'm such a nerdy preparer mm-hmm. and it went well. And, but I didn't know anything about stand up. So the guy that was running the booth, it was when everybody laughed at something and he flashed the light, which means get off, get off, yeah, yeah. Get off now, yeah. <laughs> finish up your next sentence and get off right. stage immediately. And I thought it was his way of saying, like, atta girl, keep, going. <laughs> keep it up. I was like, he's flashing lights, right. people are clapping. Right. Right. I was like, this is this is it, I've arrived. <laughs> of course, the light kept flashing, and it was flashing more and more, so I thought, he is really loving, it. loving this. <laughs> and finally, I wrapped up. I probably went, you know, you only had probably 
four minutes, if even. No, but it's amazing because you would think most first-time performers at a certain point are going to please get me out of here. You and would you're... think. <laughs> you would think. And then I finally walked off, and uh, he screamed at me and screamed at me and said, how stupid are you? What's the matter with you? And he's oh like, did you God. not see the light? And he was just screaming at me. He had me like backed up against a, a wall because I probably went three times right. my length. Oh my and you, in stand-up, it's like you do not get more time until no. you earn it. No. He said, did you not see me flashing the light? And I said, I did. And he goes, what the hell's the matter with you? How stupid are you? And he said, I thought you were encouraging me. <laughs> Well, that and he was goes, the... what are you like off? The... Well, he said something like what, you know, kind of something along the lines of like, what turnip truck did you just fall off of? I was like, <laughs> I was at a corn and soybean farm. He was oh, like, my oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So that was the auspicious beginning. That was the of... beginning. He did let me come back, but he well, it's threatened like, me. So with stand up having not even been in the cards at all prior to that night, it then became the thing for the next few months. Yeah, next few months, I liked the practice of it. And then I realized, like, oh, God, I, I have to write this stuff. I mm -hmm. should be prepared. Like, I, then I started watching what people were doing and seeing that people were doing the same sets and working on it, which ironically didn't interest me that much. I always wrote something new. Yeah, each time. Which I realized that's not how you're supposed <laughs> to do it. It's a lot but I was work. like, well, I don't want to redo the Great. same thing. I think it should be as if I had a following. <laughs> And someone would have known if I would it. repeat. Like, right. it was all, like, <laughs> you know, crazy. But I just thought, like, well, if people are coming to see it. You should give them something new. And was it at the same time that you're now also taking dramatic acting classes as well? Not yet. I didn't start taking any acting classes until I kind of got... I didn't love the stand-up rooms. It's funny. I, I was like, I don't know why other comics aren't more... Like, the other comics seem kind of mad. If you did well... They were mad at you. If you did poorly, right. they let you know they thought you sucked. And I was like, I can't win. Like, if it went okay, they still right. hate me. Right. And I remember somebody being really irritated. They're like, are you doing, like, a five-minute? Or are you just, like, because they'd seen me a couple times, and I think they were not pleased that I wasn't working the same right. jokes. Right, right, And then I didn't like all the, I hated all the heckling. Not because I couldn't take somebody not liking it, but it was, it made it this weird aggressive sport and it wasn't my thing and I just thought wait I only have four minutes up here and it was always I mean like clockwork it was always like take your top off oh my God. take your top off <laughs> I was like are you the same guy <laughs> or is it just there's such a type right without fail and I'm dressed like a drag queen <laughs> by the way I'm not up there like an alluring outfit I'm right. like I'm in a wig like kabuki makeup and like platforms like Really? That's like I'm I'm eliciting that from you. And the only way to stop them, if you had a heckler, is you couldn't kind of joke out of it. You had to to shut them up, you had to humiliate them. Yes. Yeah. And you had to come hard. <laughs> and you didn't want it to take up your whole time right. because you're like, well now I'm done like thirty seconds. What am I gonna say? Right, right, I'm gonna right. seem like I suck. So the only way to win is you had to be so harsh and you had to actually really make the person feel bad not just like jokingly you had to crush them yeah and i was like what was I, your go-to you know you had to go you had to go physical or you had to be like oh you're so good like are you alone right, you know right, oh right. you go to county clubs and like yell for women to take her top off i'm like you've never seen a woman without her top right. on with her shirt <laughs> off ever in your life and then you have to get everybody involved now everybody's well, making no, no. fun of them and i just remember every time i was like 
not my thing. Even if I could do it, I was like, it's not why I wanted to do this. It was just a, I was like, oh, you're going to be a jerk to me. I'll be even meaner back. And, and so I was like, this was the kind of thing that's making you think maybe I should do straight dramatic acting. Well, I said the greatest word any new person to any performance has ever said, which is the classic, I should do one woman show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, oh, no, oh, you probably shouldn't. You really <laughs> probably shouldn't. But that's what I thought. I was like, well, maybe I want more of like a theater right. experience because I knew I was loving performing and right. I knew I liked the thought of trying to do something like that. And I didn't know how to do that. I was like, I have at least I knew enough to know I have no idea how to do one woman show. I'd also never seen one. Right. I didn't really know what one Just was, but I heard the talk of it. <laughs> so I started with Michael Harney, who had a two-year Meisner program who, you know, he's on Orange is the New Black, yeah. and I'm quite positive he's the reason I'm an actor. Wow. Was there something specific that happened there? No, he just ran it very seriously. Like, there was no talk of, like, he didn't want to hear about auditions. Mm -hmm. He was like, I don't want to see headshots. I don't want any of that stuff. Do it somewhere else. Right. Do it with your agent. Do it wherever you want. Just don't do it in here. We're going to focus on the work, and that's all we're going to do. Did you, you have can... an agent at that point? No. Not yet, no. right? Not at all. No. no, I didn't have one for quite quite a long time. I just didn't know how to do that. And I just kind of I focused so hard on what we were doing. I mean, that to me was really my school. And you were on the side of that doing that, started getting involved with actual off or off off i think you've said off 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 broadway so, so yeah. there's not enough off yeah. in uh, my off broadway but not even that for a while i just really put Sorry. all my effort into into school and whatever you know things we were doing in class i was like which was funny i was never that dedicated in school and i got into that and it really was like yeah i'd put three hours into it at night after wow. you know two waiter shifts and a nanny job and wow. i just loved it and i thought oh I bet things would have been easier if I had this dedication to everything. But, uh, yeah, he was he was great. And then, you know, I think for the next seven years, I just did dramatic stuff. Wow. Well, I guess one question that occurs to me is, you know, to just get up on that day one and do the stand-up takes a certain ballsiness and confidence to then stick with it through hecklers and all that to – the idea that maybe I would I can do a one-person show, all that suggests that there was a certain, on the one hand, you could say naivete, <laughs> but on the other hand, like actual self-belief, confidence that not a lot of people have starting out. What, to what do you attribute that? I think my parents have always given me a pretty realistic encouragement where never were they like, you're amazing, you can do anything. Like, they weren't like that, but they were like, you can do anything if you work your ass off. If you work so hard, you've got the same shot as anybody else. And it's, you know, maybe it won't go your way. Maybe it will. If you work harder, it might. Like, there was a real emphasis on work ethic. And they both worked, and they worked hard. And, and you didn't have these things in the back of your head that many of us would have had. Like, I'm not applicable to you, but... You know, my nose is too big or my whatever. You know, everybody has something in on their shoulders saying why it's not going to work. You didn't feel that as much? I thought I at least wanted to try. I yeah. wanted to get up to the plate and I wanted to take a swing at it. Yeah. I, that was, I think, because I wasn't thinking about it in terms of work. I also think I loved doing it so much that I thought, I don't know what else I've ever been this passionate about. I mean, I was about clothing, but I, I didn't complete it in school. So I never got to the point where I really 
was doing what I wanted to do right. with it. And this one, it's kind of like day one of class. I was like, I love this. Yeah. This is doing like, I'm willing to work for this. So what happened at, I guess, 27 that made you decide to go out west? Not You didn't have that many more resources than you had when you came no. to New York, right? No, I did not at all. I just thought I loved all the studying and all of, you know, what I was doing. But I also thought at some point I have to work and I don't know how to do it here. I couldn't get an agent in New York. I couldn't get anyone to rep me in any way. I didn't quite even know how to go about it. All I did was like, you know, submit myself for plays. Right. And I just thought maybe there's going to be, and I didn't really want to go to LA. I had no affinity for it. I'd never been there. Really? I'd never stepped foot into California. Wow. And I just thought one of my best friends had moved out there and kind of all four of my best friends left New York City. So suddenly it was kind of a if you're ever gonna do it yeah it was well it was just that weird feeling of like my family so to speak has left yes. and now you find yourself in new york city without your real core base and right. it becomes very isolating and i thought if i'm gonna do this i think there's more i know there's more work opportunities there so i picked up and moved to la where my sweet friend let me move into his studio and again we slept in the kitchen together <laughs> And how then did the Groundlings enter the picture? And if you can maybe share for people who don't know, just it was a very big part of your life, it sounds yeah. like, for the next 10 years. How'd you get into it? And what were the main takeaways of that period? I got into the Groundlings. My sister Margie sent me something she'd torn out of a magazine. And it was this little tiny tiny blurb about the Groundlings, and it was the Groundlings and the Actors Gang for like LA theaters. And I remember saying like, oh, there must be so much theater in LA, it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> because I didn't know at all that that was not the case. I mean, there is theater, but it's, you know, I expected it to be Harder like to double yeah. what it was right, in New York. Right, right. So it's all I had to go on. Right. I didn't know anything other than this little tear sheet my sister had given to me. And I just happened to go to Groundlings first. I had the, both of these places circled. I didn't have a car, so I took a bus from Santa Monica and went to the Groundlings. And I remember seeing Mike McDonald and Kathy Griffin and, oh, God, that whole group at the time. And I remember I actually couldn't process that they were making it up. Stories made sense. They were so funny. It was so wrong in so many ways. Because this is all... When you say making oh, it up, yeah, improvisation. So it's all improvised. and But these scenes were making sense, and they were so funny. And I didn't even realize what I was doing on stage was improvising. So I, you I got didn't involved know. right away. I did. I started classes right away. I went and auditioned, and I got in Yeah, for the next 10, 12 years of my life. Like, I really consider the Groundlings my college. It's yeah. where I learned to write. It's where I learned to, like, develop characters and how to, you know... How far can you push it before you break it? Mm -hmm. Everything was there. It's where I met my husband, all yeah. my closest friends. I was there with, you know, it was Maya Rudolph and, and Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo and Jim Rash. And it just was this kind of crazy group of us. But the difference is you, everybody in there, like, you know, if you were going to keep moving on, everyone had a crazy work ethic. Right. It was not like, oh, I'm funny, I'll slide through. It was like, there's lots of funny people here. You better just kill yourself for it. Well, you became 
known, I think, pretty quickly for totally committing to your sketches. Was there one involving balloon popping? <laughs> yes, where I uh, somewhat broke my nose. Yeah, because you're yeah. supposed to be popping balloons. It's not popping. They were. Yeah, it was. The, it was during previews, which is you know just the first time you're you haven't put it up in front of an audience right. before, and. I'm trying to flirt with this guy who does not want anything to do with me. I later did do it on SNL. So I send myself flowers and I try to make him jealous. And he's like, I don't care. And I was like, oh, and like reading the card in front of him. And I, I think I sent myself, I sent myself something else, like a fruit basket or something. And the final one was I got a huge bouquet of balloons mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it comes in and then he says, I know you're sending these to yourself. I don't want he kind of like shames me. And then I just want them to disappear mm -hmm. because I've been, you know, outed mm -hmm. as a fraud. And I try to hide them behind my back. But there's like six huge balloons and one's like a giant horse. Right, right, right. But they were all mylar because I was like, oh, they'll look even more stupid on stage. I didn't realize that you can't, and I challenge anyone to easily <laughs> break a mylar balloon. I'm not a weak woman. Right, right. I'm pretty strong. Right. And it was supposed to be like a two-second thing. I was supposed to pull the balloons down, pop them in my hands, and be done with it and move on to the rest of the scene. It was about over. So right. I'd already like, okay, scene's long enough. Get Pop the balloons and get out of there. And I couldn't pop them. I couldn't physically get one of them popped. And then I'm panicking because like yeah. you just hear a, a clock ticking mm -hmm. and people getting. And so I started violently punching these balloons, but truly just trying to pop right, them. And I think right. at one point the audience even knew like Something's she can't wrong. get right, them popped. Right. And then they started laughing. And then I just wanted to get off that stage. So I took the horse one at this point from a standing position, I started throwing myself down on the ground oh. and I was bouncing off of yeah. it. Like even that, like my whole body weight on it was not popping them. And it became so crazy and violent and so physical. <laughs> And at one point I was on my knees and I had another balloon and I just, I kept slam, repeatedly slamming myself down from my knees to the ground, like bouncing off my right. chest. And one finally broke and then I slammed my head. Through it. I slammed my face oh. into the stage and I, I came up and I couldn't really see. I was starting to black out and then the director blacked it out. But then I also got Mylar balloons for the rest of the oh run of the show because I'm an idiot. Well, your <laughs> husband said, quote, to this day, she's like, well, the audience liked it, close quote. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a good one. But was the dream through all those years at with Groundlings to sort of follow in the footsteps of what ultimately happened with Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph to then go to SNL? Was that really at the be-all, end-all for you at that point? I mean, it was always kind of the holy grail. Mm -hmm. I think it still is. It's like, and I was there for so many years, and I did almost every show. If I took one show off a run, it's when SNL came. Because right. even now that I know those guys so well, I'm, they're like, how did we never see right. you? It seems physically impossible. Right. I'm like, because I would be gone one show a year, oh, and it's the one day you guys came. Come. But every year, like it was not saying that they ever would have cared about me anyway, but like the timing was... Yeah remarkable that right. I could not get in front of them. But yeah, it's what everybody kind of dreams yeah. about. Yeah. But. So instead, what it seems like happened through those years was you would occasionally get little parts either in on TV or in films. It looks like your first TV part. This is just a fun trivia item. Mm -hmm. Turns out your cousin's Jenny McCarthy. Yeah. So you were on an episode of her show. You said that Jennifer Coolidge is the reason you got your first movie job. Yeah. What's that about? 
She was a groundling. I was just in classes. I didn't think she knew who I was to save my life <laughs> because it's like, ooh, the groundlings were so amazing. Right. And I didn't have an agent. I could still never get into anybody's office. And she called Joseph Middleton, who was a casting director, and said, you should see her for this part. And I remember the office calling my number because I didn't have any representation. They said, you know, Jennifer doesn't do that. So I've gotten like two calls from her in 10 years where she tells me to see somebody. Wow. So I do it. Wow. And I got called in and I got go, that was which it. was my first movie. And I mean, she always goes, oh, I did not. I did nothing. I'm like, it's the That's only important. reason I got yeah. a part. And she just did it just to be nice and just to like help somebody out. So that nice. means a lot to me. So as you're now approaching your 30th birthday, you, <laughs> I, I've read that you kind of said to yourself, you know, these smaller parts are nice, but like, if I'm going to stick with this, I've got to have something actually happen or I've got to get out of this. Is that true? Yeah, I was 29 and I was starting to work production jobs. So I was working more steadily in that. And Meaning I, like, like production, I started as a PA and then I was a production coordinator, coordinator yeah. then production manager. And I was starting to do wow. okay with that. And I thought, you know, I can, I can produce, I find it creative. Mm -hmm. I still think it's part of the process mm -hmm. I love. And I, I just have to know, I was getting tired of like, I have, I have to know that I can pay my phone yeah. bill. Like at some point I want to progress with my life and it doesn't have to be much, but like, I right. can't keep calling my parents to be like, well, my car broke down. So I'm, I'm, I can't quite make rent. Like right. I was like, I'm, I just can't keep doing yeah, that. Yeah, I felt, yeah. I felt like I can't keep asking them for help. I think it was like, I want to say like a week or two before my 30th birthday, I got Gilmore Girls. And how did that come about? We should just remind people, yeah. this is Sookie, the chef who's the best friend of Lauren Graham's character, Lorelai. This is from 2000, 2007, 122 episodes. So that was a game changer. How did yeah, it come about? That was seven years of work. I was like, oh, my God, I think I could officially say, like, that was the first time I ever said, like, I'm an actor. Right, right. That came about, I did have an, I had an agent at that point. I find it very funny now. <laughs> they had let me go, like, the week before. Cause I was, I was looking around for other, cause they weren't sending me out. Right. So I started looking around for other agents. My agent at the time found out, but I was like, but you're not sending me out. Yeah. So shouldn't I go somewhere else? And she said, she was very mad at me <laughs> that I was like, I guess like cheating on her, but I'm like, but you haven't sent me yeah. out in like nine months. Right. So she let me go. She was really mad that wow. I was taking other meetings. I'm like, what? Yeah. And then the next week I got to kill more girls. Now you got was, that independent of any agent. Yes. Uh, my, I had a manager at the time. So the manager yeah. brought it. Okay. But so, but still, it was kind of amazing to be yeah. like dumped by somebody. And Ultimate like, fu. Yeah. <laughs> take that. And what's it like playing? You know, what are the the pros and cons of playing one character over seven seasons? I guess you were certainly doing other things in between. If we look at the filmography, you were popping up in Charlie's Angels, White Oleander, Life of David Gale. There are other things going on. But during those years, you were that character. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something kind of really great about being able to evolve a character over a long period of time. I mean, I don't know how much my character on that particular show had a great evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, I like the group and I like the people. And my God, after a good decade of struggling, a steady job, yeah. I was like, I have no complaints. I have no complaints. And I, I think there's something kind of great, especially there's so many amazing television shows now where you really can... Yeah take a character from A to Z, so. And then you 
obviously just a short gap between Gilmore Girls and the next big TV thing, which would be Mike and Molly, 192 episodes, I think, on CBS. Just this is the wife and teacher titular character there. In this case, it's a very different, I guess, just dynamic. You, you got Chuck Lorre multicam sitcom situation. Which I'd never done. Yeah, it's a different no idea how way to do of that. doing it. Live audience, right? And Which I thought, oh, it'll be like theater. I'm like, oh, it's the opposite. It's of the theater. opposite. Yeah. But I read that you had a little pause before taking it on, and I wonder if you can share why that was. Was there some hesitation about the subject matter or just the central? Yeah, well, I thought it was a, it's a form that I didn't know if I was geared to do. And yeah, in the fo- I thought, do I really want to make a show about where the first, it turned out to not be the right. main issue, but you know, when you have it pitched to you, it's like two people that meet at like an Overeaters Anonymous thing. And I said, thank you, no. <laughs> But we'd just gone through the writer's strike, right. and frankly, I was like, I need a job. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I gotta, yeah. I have to work. And it did obviously grow much beyond that. Yeah, it Six did. Seasons. And I, you know, so the, I think with anything, especially a TV role, you're, you're grateful for the work, but also like you are looking at a huge commitment. I mean, yeah. You sign a six-year, I think it's a six-year contract. So that's like, ooh, just you know, you do have to stop and kind of think like, is this, will this be positive? Right. And I think it must have been around the same time that that got off the ground that you have this audition for a little movie that Kristen and Annie had started to, I guess, had written together, Bridesmaids. Yeah. I read that you were very nervous going in and coming out of that yeah. audition. Just how did it even first cross your radar that this existed? And then why were you so particularly nervous in that case? Well, I almost didn't go in for it. I mean, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo were really good friends of mine. We'd been in at the Groundlings Theater together for eons. It was just such a crazy big deal that they were doing something for Judd Apatow and Paul Feig was directing. I mean, we were all like, it was like they both became unicorns. Right. Like everyone was just like, oh, how did it? Like it was kind of like in our group, the first people that that had happened to, yeah. we couldn't even comprehend it. Not that we didn't think like, yeah, if anybody, them, mm-hmm. like it should be. They're both like incredible. But it was just like a mystical thing. And then they called me to come in for this part. And I just got so nervous that like it was such a big deal for them that I was like, I don't want to like. And I wasn't nervous to audition, but something about it, I was like, oh, I don't want to blow this for them. If they've called me in, like they didn't call me and Kristen and Annie are calling me in. I don't want to like be too weird or do something and then like have this reflect poorly on them. And I was like, I'm not going to go. I, I should well I should probably I should probably go but maybe I shouldn't go is it weird and I don't know I didn't do that kind of back and forth right. a lot I just usually I was like we'll see right and I did it on that one then I went in and Kristen and I improvised and you said you came in with a pretty clear vision of I what you was want. on the page <laughs> I thought like how her demeanor was and if for some reason I read it and immediately I saw her should we just I say this is Megan <laughs> who has been described as quote a self-made woman of great machismo, voracious sexual appetites, <laughs> mysterious financial resources, and a truly atrocious wardrobe, close quote. <laughs> Someone who you decided would be not unlike Guy Fieri. <laughs> yes, that's who I modeled it after. Oh I like God. her wardrobe and just that like super uber confidence of like seemingly walk into any restaurant and be like, everybody loves me right. and like kind of own it. That's at the root of what makes her funny, right? Is that she just doesn't contemplate that it could go badly. No, it wouldn't even be a concept that like right. whatever she's doing, she is killing right. it. <laughs> and I, yeah, I left that audition 
because especially like improvising with Kristen, you know, we fell into old habits and I said whatever I wanted. Right. So we were improvising and we did the audition, but I kept saying weird things about, a, you know, a dolphin had handled me <laughs> and there was fin play and... And then it wasn't until like, and we're doing it. So I'm only kind of thinking about Kristen. And then we stopped and I looked out and I saw Paul and John and I was like, well, <laughs> I've completely blown it. What the hell did I just say? I'm talking about like having a, like a sexual encounter with a dolphin. Like, where do I, like, who do I think I am? Like, what is the matter with me? Right. And I drove home the hallway just like, oh my God, can't, like, Why? <laughs> Why so weird? I didn't mean to, but it like, yeah. How much longer after that did you hear? I think it was very long. Yeah. So even if they weren't showing it in the room, they were uh, And they all were like, we were all laughing. What are you talking about? I'm like, I think I was just so nervous to be there with you guys and Kristen. Like, it just all meant more because it was like they they meant so much to me. Obviously, you then go and make the movie. It sounds like it was a lot of fun as it would appear to be from from watching it. Do you remember, you know, for, for those of us watching it who weren't a part of it the i think first we should say the air marshal who your character seduces <laughs> is your husband yes, and then Jed's idea yes and then the bathroom scene which we had kristen on this podcast and she was saying that it actually wasn't it was sort of imposed upon them i think it was not something they originally want but they're happy it yeah. got added but i mean i think what i don't remember if your line was like move out of the way or something but that was a big one did you sense making that one that this could it just seems so at first we were all like oh is this like a gross out bathroom scene i think that right. was the hesitance right. with everyone of like is this where we try to like shove in like the guy gross out scene right. we're like it's just not maybe and then you know i remember saying maybe to my or something like but how Im- truly embarrassing i mean to your core even in front of your best friends the horror. Right. If it's played almost like a horror scene, I said, if we are well, that was look away. That was look away. <laughs> I said, if we're truly appropriate, instead of being like, yeah, this is awesome, right. I said, something's kind of magically funny about just six people that are so embarrassed and right. yet can't leave right. because it's the trains off, the trains out of the station, like it's it's happening. <laughs> I said, there's something so humiliating about that that it could be really funny. And then we all kind of slowly got on board with it. Yeah. So do you remember the first time you saw the film? And then do you remember what opening weekend was like? Because I would think that your life was pretty different from then on. I remember thinking like, holy God, it's so funny to me. But those were all my friends. So I was like, I don't know that anybody else is going to find what we find funny. Like, why would they suddenly? Like it hadn't. And then I remember opening weekend, Ben and I, we were at Paul Feig's house with his wife, Lori, and they had come in, like everybody panicked at the last minute. And like, if it was supposed to open at this amount, suddenly like the Friday or whatever, like the day before we opened, it was like, everybody just get your expectations and check. It's the numbers have gone way down. (laughs) Expectations are way down. This is not going to do well. And I just remember being like, I think you're wrong. And they're like, uh, this, the metrics of what we do are pretty accurate. And I was like, it's all word of mouth. You can't like estimate that. Like, I think it's going to do really well. And they were like, it's not, we just want you to be prepared. And I was like, I'm still going to say, I think you're wrong. And they were like, okay, we're not, but we, they just kept finishing with like, okay, we're not, we know what we're doing. And Paul and I were sitting in this backyard and we'd had dinner and we'd had a drink 
and we were like, okay, you know, let's just see. And all of a sudden the numbers and stuff started coming in, which Paul knew how to check for all this yep. stuff. And he was like, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, it's past, it's past, it's past it. It's past it. It's still going. It's still going. And I remember and he, they, he lived like two minutes from where Ben and I lived. Right. And we were like, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> so we all piled in the car and we went to the Arclight oh, in awesome. Hollywood. Yeah. And we went in and Paul like, was just like, we're going in. And we just went into the backs of like the couple of theaters that it was playing. And we right. just stood there and listened to like all these people laugh. And it was so overwhelming and crazy because we're like, oh, my God, I think it's working. That's like, amazing. Yeah. Not even working like in the sense of a success, but just like what we thought was good and funny and a good movie is like so do other people. We're not crazy. And then in terms of just moving forward with life after that did you have a noticeable difference in being able to just go to the supermarket or things like that after that yeah that was a pretty i mean i you know certainly i'd been on gilmore girls for a long time but that was pretty mellow yeah but yeah there was a big there was a big jump yeah. like i didn't quite know how to i was like oh i, I... well that's a, the next thing i mean like how do you handle something like that I think I got lucky that it was always really nice. Like I never had anyone being like, I hate you. Right. I'm sure they're out there. Right. I just didn't run into them at right. my grocery store. Right, 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 right. So I thought, well, God, I've tried to do this for a long time. I'm, I'm just glad somebody actually went and saw it. Right. Like this is kind of amazing that you're going to see a movie that my friends and I worked on. And, like, and that was quite of, a, I guess, more or less a summer because that opened on May 13th, 2011. On September 18th, 2011, was the Emmys, they call up all the, I don't know how this was coordinated, uh, but all of the best actress in a comedy series nominees went up to the stage as their names were announced as nominees, like a beauty pageant. I think it was Tina's idea. Right. And she's like, well, let's just be a united front instead of like playing into the like shots of like, are right. we all looking and smiling at each other? <laughs> so as we, as we get called, it was like, okay, everybody get up and misread it as if we've won. Knowing it, it's going to be a little awkward if you don't win. Totally. And then yeah. we didn't know if it was really happening. Right. So like, the first I person didn't know. to do it. I'm trying to think of who was the first. I think it was Amy Poehler. It was, it was Amy. Yeah. And it was Amy and Tina who came up with right. the idea. They're like, we should do a bit. And we didn't know. And I remember Ben and I just being like, and I was already sitting next. Uh, no, I was with my sister. And I was sitting next to Kathy Bates. which was already like, <laughs> I was trying so hard not to start bawling because right. she's like my right. hero. And. I loved her so much. I was like, I can't believe I'm sitting next to Kathy Bates. And I kept looking at my sister and I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. If they call my name first, like, I don't know what to do. And thank God, Amy's name went first and she shot up yep. onto stage yep. like a rocket. And right. people were like, what's happening? And well, so then a... the punchline is you, not the punchline, but the, <laughs> sorry, no, the, the payoff is you won. Crazy. So that's all within a period of just like four months, though, the Bridesmaids opening and you're an Emmy winner. A lot of people then felt that, you know, you had a lot of people that were big fans of, of the Bridesmaids performance who are saying this deserves an Oscar nomination. But I think in the back of a lot of people's heads, they're saying the Academy has generally been a pretty humorless yes. organization. So. For you, going into nominations morning, did you realistically think... I mean, you had some other things. I think the BAFTA, maybe SAG, or different nominations. But did you think that this stodgy old group no. at the time would actually do it? No, not in, a, not in a million years. Not in a million years. And I was up really early. I had no idea that that's when the announcement... It's like not something I've right, ever watched right, before. Right. Like, <laughs> you're not aware of it. Right. And Ben always sleeps later than me. So I was walking through to check on the baby, and it was really early. 
and Ben was sitting there watching TV, and I was like, what are you watching? What are you doing up? And he's like, it's a nominations. And I could I was like, but why are you up? Right. Like, I couldn't figure, I didn't right. put too much on it. And then we sat there, and we watched some of them, and I, they came to that category. And I'm pretty sure my, I think my name was said first, and I had no reaction. And then they said Octavia's name, who I've been friends with forever, Octavia Spencer. And she got nominated, and I burst out crying. And I looked at Ben, and I was like, oh, my God, Octavia was just nominated for an Oscar. And he was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, that's amazing. Right. Did you hear what came before it? And I was right. like, hmm? Like, it just you literally, somehow that. it just literally, like, went in one ear right. and, like, came out. And then Octavia, and I was so happy. I was like, yay! <laughs> and I oh. couldn't. So it was a very weird, like, I've never believed in, like, a true delay reaction, but I just, like, something in my And then brain. hopefully it's not it after that. It but, did. Uh, it did, and I couldn't believe it. No, that's awesome. Well, what I hope we can do is just briefly touch on a bunch of these other great, hilarious things that have followed con mm -hmm. leading up to Can You Ever Forgive Me here. The first one released after Bridesmaids was a film in which the part you played was originally written for a man, but I guess changed for you, which is a testament to you know, people's feelings about you coming off of Bridesmaids. Also, I guess a test in a way, how's a Melissa McCarthy starring central vehicle going to play? And the answer was very well, open at number one and ultimately grossed $135 million. This was Identity Thief. That must have been a confidence booster. To... It's pretty wild. And yeah. it was so fun. I mean, Bateman is just, you know, he's so funny and he's so good. And I remember, you know, we met and I couldn't believe I was meeting him. I mean, it just seemed kind of surreal that we were talking about, like, a movie together. Right. I'd never been like, do you want to sit and talk about a movie? I was like, would you <laughs> like to have me read a monologue for you? So that was, that that was, was just a blast. A... It was really fun. Later that same year was The Heat. We should say that you were playing a detective here who ends up partnered with Sandra Bullock mm -hmm. and back with Paul Feig from Bridesmaids. Grossed $160 million. Fun to have another female, female yeah. kind of centric Totally, part. yeah. It, that was, I mean, Sandy's like truly one of the most awesome people on the planet. So it's just also, it's like I kept doing things where I'm like, this is so fun. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> right. Tammy, you and your husband had written this together, yeah. I guess, with the always with the hope that you would star in it. He would direct it for his debut. According to Toby Emmerich at New Line, he said mm -hmm. that, he saw Bridesmaids over the weekend that it came out, and then on Monday reached out and said, do you have anything you want to do? And said in 22 years, he'd never blindly green-lighted anything, but this was the first. Is that correct? It was all pretty fast and furious. Oh, yeah, it made us, like, falsely go, like, I guess making a movie is pretty easy. <laughs> just the, call up a guy. Just call yeah. them. Uh, they just call, and they let you do it. No, but originally Ben was not supposed to direct it. Oh, really? Yeah, we, we we had written and were you know producing it, and and we just couldn't quite get the right fit. We had somebody, and then they dropped out, and then it just we couldn't get to the right fit. And I, later we went and you know it was again Toby that we're like, is it crazy if Ben directs it? Like he knows the story, mm -hmm. he knows it better than anyone else, and it's not like we can do it. We're right. like, we need tons of help. We don't know how to do this, but we also feel like people we're meeting with maybe don't have the same tone because right. it was a different tone. It was more of an independent movie. It was, 
It wasn't just straight comedy. Well, that, that was amazing uh, to do. That one was just to remind people you're a fast food worker who <laughs> loses her job and embarks on a road trip with her alcoholic grandmother, Susan Sarandon. Just generally, because it's happened now several times, which we'll touch upon, but what's it like working that closely with your husband professionally? I mean, awesome. you'd obviously done it at yeah. Groundlings, but this is... Same, same thing, though. I mean, I think it's why... I mean, it's truly how we met and why we became yeah. such good friends. Like, if I wasn't married to him, we'd probably still be business partners. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's That's he's great. my favorite person to write with. He's the most even Steven steady guy and really funny and smart. And it's just been... It's always been easy and and really fun with him. So it's like that's great. that's a, that's a fun day at work. Working with one's heroes. <laughs> Hi, Richard, Richard E. Grant. <laughs> Richard E. Grant just popped his head in, and then right. weirdly we're coming at backwards. him. We're coming at him. <laughs> Working with one's heroes can go wrong. It sounds like it did not in this in the case of Saint Vincent with Bill Murray. You're playing Maggie, a single mom whose son becomes friends with a crotchety neighbor, aka Bill Murray. What was that like? Just so much nervous sweat and weirdly rehearsing how to try to say hello and seem casual. <laughs> and I was so afraid I was going to say hello, Mr. Bill Murray, uh, Murray Bill, Mr. Um, and I was like, oh, I've never ever in my life before. <laughs> I hope he doesn't hear this. He doesn't care. But uh, I truly was like, ah. Hey, Bill. Um, no, I can't just call him Bill. I don't know him yet. Like, there was a lot of, like, just in my trailer, like, be cool. Be cool, which is not something I almost right, ever right. possess. And just a panic. And then he came in, and I think it's part of what makes him so amazing. I think he knows, either it's his true weird self, or he knows people are just freaked out to meet him. Right. And he came in and just made a beeline for me. But before I could do any of my weird prepared <laughs> casualness, right. he just started inspecting me and turning me like he was buying like a horse <laughs> or like a used car. See what he was saying. And then for. he was like, "You're not too short, but you're not, you're not actually too tall." <laughs> and he was like raising and lowering my arms. And like at one point, I think he checked my teeth. <laughs> And then he was like pulling my leg up behind me as if he was like checking a horseshoes. And then he was like bendable, but not too bendable. Oh, and just literally kept walking around me and like manipulating me. And then after this went on for an incredibly long time, I think then I was just laughing yeah. so hard. And then he's like, I don't even know if we actually introduce ourselves. Or right. Then we just started just a weird conversation and thus began knowing Bill. That's great. One of the best reviewed of the lot, I think, was Spy from 2015. Your CIA desk agent goes out in the field for the first time, back again with Paul Feig, who wrote and directed it. But what was interesting, I think, and correct me if this is wrong, but unlike most of these roles that we're talking about, certainly post-Bridesmaids, this one was not written with you in mind, yet it feels like it just as well could have been. Yeah, I feel like we were on the phone and he was talking about it, and I kept making him tell me more. And I was like, then what? <laughs> oh my God. And then what? Wait, who, who says that? Who says right. that? Who's that guy? Wait, what? And he was like, okay, I got to go. And I was like, wait, what is she, then what? So where are they? What country? <laughs> and then later I feel like I, I'm pretty sure I called him again. I was like, I have to actually hear the, the rest of it. Like, and I didn't think like I need to do it, but I was like, I actually, I just want to hear what happens. I'm, I'm like crazy about it. And then I can't remember if I just asked, like, can I do it? Like, <laughs> no. let me do it. Let me do it. And then that was, you know. That. Dr. Abby Yates, Ghostbusters remake. Again, Paul Feig, 
again, the same kinds of chatter that there was around bridesmaids. Will people go see a movie with all women and all this stuff? Then you because were... Because it's the year 1801. Right, guys. right. And you're spoiling people's childhoods yeah. by uh, reframing the movie with whatever. That but, was my favorite quote, by the way. Which one was that? You're ruining my Oh, you were ruining my childhood. I was like, I'm pretty sure anyone who says that about this, yeah. you already had a terrible You had a terrible childhood. <laughs> and it's not my fault. Yeah, don't blame me. Uh, <laughs> you were more of the straight woman in that one than yeah. you normally play. Do you like that? I didn't mind it. I think sometimes I'm, I'm not against where like somebody's got to drive kind of the the story of it. I mean, I think it's it's a little hard to do that with three other really funny women. Right. Right. You, you feel a little like, you know, hand tied. But I think you do have to always stay in service of like you have to propel the story. Right. So but it was still really fun to do. The Boss, 2016, Michelle, a rich motivational speaker, loses everything, winds up moving in with her assistant. You co-wrote it with your husband and Steve Mallory. Then your husband directed it. This was a character that dated back to the Groundlings, right? Yeah, yeah, that's one I did. It was I'd go out into the audience and do like a seminar where I'd basically grift people and then <laughs> tell them, you know, if we did this in real life, I'd be suing you right. or I'd make money off of you. And it was just someone who was un so like shamelessly or shamefully right. just talking about how much money they had and it was such a it was such a driving energy that i kind of always wanted to do something with her right. and like those so many of those people exist <laughs> that i'm always so fascinated with right. somebody who talks about how successful they are or their money especially when they're like Sounds in a like public forum someone who might be in the white house at the I was, moment. <laughs> you know what it, there was yes yeah. i just wasn't uh, the color of a cheeto right well <laughs> well speaking of the white house how did they finally get you aside <laughs> from being a host to to come on as as a character on saturday night live starting in 2017 this was a driver of what turned out to be the most watched snl season in 23 years first in 25 years to win best variety series at the emmys it sounds like it was just kind of, I guess, Kent Sublet, the writer yeah. at SNL. Kent, who again is a friend from the Groundlings Theater, yeah. called, and I was in, I was in New York, and he said, "Oh, you know, would would you ever think about coming in and doing Spicer?" And I was like, "What? <laughs> what is? What, what are you talking about?" I was like, "I can't. What? What? I don't even know what you're asking me." And he's like, "Will you come in and do Spicer?" He goes, "I think, I think you should do it." And I was like, "That's crazy." I said, I don't do impersonations. I don't know how to do that. It's not how my brain works. And he's like, you don't have to do an impersonation. Just just do him. Just do make it a character. And at least I was like, I'll come and like talk to you about it and like read it. I don't, I'm, I'm like 98%, I'm not doing it. Right. It's just not something I do. And then really embarrassing, I'm like, and how will I ever look like him? And then the prosthetics guy came in. He was like, yeah, it'll take me about like like 18 minutes. I was like, what? So no excuse now. No. Well, and it was like a little blow to your ego. We were like, I can make you a middle-aged man in a heartbeat. I was like, what? Please tell me that's hard to do. And he's and like, And what nah. was that uh, moment like when they, when, I don't remember if you rolled out the first time, but basically when you first emerged and nobody had any warning of that, as they processed that for you, what was that like? It was a weird wave because I think the studio audience also didn't know that it was me. So I think they were just trying to figure out which which cast member is that, who is that, which that doesn't happen very often. They usually know like who it is or you you know like they kind of promote it. And so having that weird wave for five months. First they see it Spicer right. and there was a big reaction to that. And then there was like this weird lull of who is it mm -hmm. and what's happening? 
I don't know. It just, it was so nicely received from people, which I was terrified because I was doing something I'd never done before. Right. I was like, I'm doing a real person. It was, uh, I did not expect the response to be what it was. That was... Well, you and he are forever intertwined no, now. No. <laughs> well, and on <laughs> Emmy's night, were you actually surprised when he came out on Emmy's night? Or did I, you know? I knew he was... I only found out like 10 minutes beforehand. Oh, okay. <laughs> Somebody had nicely told me so I wouldn't right. be like... I was befuddled, I, but once he was there, I couldn't figure out for the life of me why. <laughs> I just kept looking at him like, but why it's are so you weird. here? Why? Yeah. So this year, earlier we saw Life of the Party. This is, you're playing Deanna, dowdy mom, dumped by her husband. So she then enrolls in the same college as their daughter. Again, directed by your husband. Your thoughts, any on that? I love that movie. I mean, that was... I don't know. It was, there was just such a sense of joy in that movie, and I loved like working with all those early to mid twenties women. That was like, there's an awesome energy to be had that, and going to work every day with, like they would come on days where they weren't working. They would just like come hang out on set, and like getting to spend time with Maya again is. I'll tell you that's a never. That is never a bad day, but that whole that whole thing just kind of seemed happy and. And I don't know, I kind of, lo I just loved it. I loved That's the great. story. I loved her. I loved all those girls. We're still really close with all, all of them. That's great. Well, all right. So Can You Ever Forgive Me? I just came a few weeks ago from the Toronto International Film Festival where this movie was unveiled and people went ballistic, just I think as, as great reviews as, as any that you've ever received for your work. And I, I want to ask you how it began. Were you kind of looking for, it's not a straight up, dramedy or certainly not a straight up comedy but were you looking for something more in the middle of the spectrum or just kind of happened it just kind of happened I just loved I loved the script so much originally Ben had it there was a an original incarnation yeah. of it that you know movies fall apart yeah. schedules don't work out all the time and I had read it because he he was in it and I thought I couldn't get over how much I loved the script I was like you just don't read things like this this is like in a, like in, it's I don't throw it around a lot. I was like, this script is incredible. Yeah, it's Nicole so good. Hoffman, Nicole Hall of Center, not surprisingly, just wrote an incredible script. Mm -hmm. And once it wasn't happening, I kind of couldn't get Lee out of my head. And I kept asking about it. And Ben's like, I don't know what's happening with it. It's not, as of right now, it's like not on the table. And I was like, I know, but she's amazing. Like somebody had, like, why didn't I know her story? Like people should know her story. Mm -hmm. Like who? Who goes through like an FBI thing and then like we don't know about yeah. it? Like what? And I couldn't, I was like a dog with a bone. Like it'd be three weeks would go by and Ben's talking about something else. And I'm like, but Lee just should be shown. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening with it. And, you know, then I just started thinking like, well, you know, I don't can know I aggressively throw my name in the hat? <laughs> well, I'm sure they, I mean, maybe people wouldn't have assumed that this is something you wanted to do. You know, you happen to have broken through in comedy, but it sounds like yeah. you enjoy drama I too. I love both. Yeah. I, think the, I think the mix is what, I mean, I think it's, at least for myself, I should say, is what I always wanted. I yeah. think it's the perfect balance. I think you get to, you know, you get to push different energies. There's different styles in how you portray different tones getting to do both I think just makes such a good balance in the work and for me it's absolutely how my brain works that and I, I don't prepare or even fully ever think about is something a comedy or a right. drama I just think about the story and the and the character 
Marielle says it was your work in St. Vincent that made her think you would be great in this part. Do you yeah. see the connection? I do. I think I, 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 like tonally, yeah, and it was a trickier part. I mean, I think in all comedies there's always vulnerability and, and, and parts where you have to dip down to try to let your characters come back up. And I, I don't think you have to pick. Mm -hmm. I don't think things have to. I don't know when yeah, we kind of one. became obsessed with, is it a comedy or right. is it a drama? I'm right. like, it's a story. Some stories start high and go low and vice versa. So I do see the connection between those two, I think, tonally. Was this the first time you ever played somebody who was actually at one time alive? Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Because, but I guess Other in, than Spicer, but yeah. Right. I'm but sorry. We're, yeah, not of course. Sure, <laughs> we're not sure if he's really alive. He may, need to be, need if to you check. need a heart to live, right. maybe not. <laughs> but I guess the reason I ask is that you've said, quote, one of my favorite things is finding the character, the wardrobe, the makeup, the hair, clothes, quote. In this case, it must have been nice because you could do that without, most people don't know what Leah Israel looked like, yeah. but you could go after the essence of it, right? I one, certainly go after the essence of it, finding... You know, she was not someone who, she wanted her writing in the forefront, not herself. I mean, that's so much of what the movie is about. And not surprisingly, there's not a lot of stuff out there. There's not a lot of stuff on her. Right. And so, you know, I, I was lucky enough to know two of our producers knew her very well. Oh, wow. David is actually the person that kept poking her to actually write her book which she didn't want to do. And he right. said, not surprisingly, she made it very difficult, but then she did finally write it. And Carrie is, has had this project for probably 10 years and used to go to dinner with Lee all the time, who I find it amazing that said, you know, Lee would always be there first without fail. She would be there first. And it wasn't until Lee left that then she would get the bill and realize she got there early and would have two drinks oh. and, and put it on Anne's <laughs> bill, which I thought was just That's kind of... That's a great detail. Isn't that yeah. great? I was like, oh, it's so good. Well, the the parts of the movie that in, are often among the funniest and, and most moving involve <laughs> our cameo maker from a moment ago, Richard <laughs> E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. He's, He's somebody that's been so funny and I think underappreciated for so many years and now people are loving what you guys did together in this and also noting that it's not very often that you see at the center of a movie two characters who are both openly gay and over the age of 50 it's just yeah. kind of an unusual dynamic for the record I'm under 50 well you personally yes but the character I think <laughs> yes, character. yes yes good good point I don't care, no. I don't care. <laughs> well uh, and they you look a lot better in real life than, she, than the character too but it's uh, true though so that We're was not wearing capes no <laughs> so just having another person who you know going back to with nail and yeah. I like somebody that can do comedy at a high level like that is that fun he is remarkable and we which is weird because now I feel like I've known him my entire life we met on Friday and started shooting on Monday and didn't see each other over the weekend we just had this wow. quick quick meeting talked about the script went through it with Mari I was very nervous because I think he's amazing and it's always a little nerve-wracking to meet somebody first you also hope my god I hope they're nice right. I hope this is going to be pleasant I hope he you know like me, it's like you have all these, like there's so many things yeah. going through your head the first time you meet somebody that you know you're going to have this, like supposed to have this very close relationship with. And it took about a minute. That's great. Yeah, I, I think mean, we I... were immediately like, I think I like you a lot. Like it just kind of clicked. And he's so, I mean, he's the most open, gregarious, very, very intelligent, lovely, funny guy. 
and it just all kind of tumbles at you at once. And it shines through in the, it, the movie. You yeah, really it does. It. It's like his heart comes through because Jack is not. It's not a character you should root for. He's a grifter. I mean, he's fully like conning people, and he turns on Lee, and yet he's still. Yeah, and her cat. I mean, I still think that wasn't Jack's fault. But <laughs> but you end up, I think it's a testament to Richard that somehow he put this heart into that character. And he's so funny and so heartbreaking in parts that it's it's. I think he just played it beautifully. What did you make of that reaction in Toronto? You seem to, from what I saw, actually really be touched by it. It's not something that every movie evokes that kind of a response. No, it doesn't. Especially for a movie that... You know, I care so much about. I mean, I I've been lucky enough to love everything I've done, which maybe mm-hmm. sounds like doesn't sound genuine, but I really do. You spend so much time mm-hmm. with with these, but this is this little story of these invisible people. You don't see them. You walk by them a million times a day, and they don't register. They're somehow have lost their value. And so, to me, to have their story, to have Lee's story, that all she ever wanted was people to look at her work. You know, if it was a crime or not, she still was like, whatever with the crime, the work right. was good. The right. writing was good. She was proud. And to have people feel so much, and, you know, that's what Richard and I both have said. So many people have said, like, we, it made us feel so much that it's nice to know people still want to see a story about the human condition and about that everyone feels lonely and that everyone feels a little lost sometimes. And, you know, what would you do if you were pushed into kind of a desperate situation? I don't think, I think when you watch someone have that struggle, it makes you stop and realize, like, I'm, you know, I can't say I wouldn't do the same or some version of it. They're in the process right now. They're on the hunt for a producer and then a host of the Oscars. If someone who you like is hired as the producer, would you ever consider hosting? No, I think I'd be terrible at it. Really? Why? I don't think I. I don't think it's my thing. Yeah. I think it's a real specific skill set. I hosted one thing once. I did like a women in film, mm-hmm. and I like danced in people's faces, <laughs> and everybody's like, just for good energy, just good energy. And then literally the rest of the thing was like about the atrocities. And bubbly, bubbly. and I was like, "Oh you no!" Totally, it's I I hit the wrong right. tone. I just remember Neil Patrick Harris was like, "It ain't easy, is it?" I was like, "Oh no, I'm dying! I'm dying! I'm why didn't anybody tell me?" Like, well, I mean, he did it in a really funny way, but I was just like, <laughs> "So I think I think I've uh, I tried, I failed, and I, I will leave it to people more skilled at that than myself." Okay, and then the last question <laughs> is just you know we've obviously now zoomed through all the challenges and, and rewards of the career thus far. And I just wonder, having, you know, kind of reliving this, and we didn't even touch upon all of the highs or all of the, you know, some of the bullshit that people encounter. I'm thinking of a certain asshole named Rex Reed and some other yes. things along the way. I just wonder, you know, at this moment, and again, at the end of an hour of revisiting all of it, what's your outlook? Presently, going forward, just what's your going thought? Going forward, I just always hope to be surprised. I think I keep getting, luckily, to get to do things where I'm like, I never thought I'd get to meet Lee. You know, that that's something to me that's just like, I got to like walk around in her shoes for a bit and actually get to know this woman. Or I feel that way about every time I get to play somebody. I think, a year ago, I had no idea I was going to meet this person. I mean, I do think of them as real, yeah. you know, entities. 
when you think back to Miss Y and, and even back <laughs> to Plainsfield or whatever, I mean, can you quite, if you actually, I'm sure there's not many opportunities to kind of like smell the roses, but here we're doing it. Does it feel um, real? Some days, yes. And then I would say, in all honesty, there's probably not a day that goes by that Ben and I don't look at each other and go, are you kidding me? <laughs> like every time we drive to set, every single time we're like, does this make any sense to you at all? I mean, like that kind of stuff. I hope to God it never becomes like, whatever. It's just what we do. <laughs> I love that we're completely just like so geeked out every time because it's like, what are, look what we're getting to do. Like, it's ridiculous. It's it's crazy that we get to like make up stories and then like try to make them real. And all these like super talented people are like fully in it and want to do it too. It's, I don't know. I hope to God I never find that to not be remarkable. Right. Well, keep up the great work. Thank Thanks. you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm sorry. Our, our band stopped playing. Our band stopped. Yeah. <laughs> really sorry about that, guys. So yeah. well, I'll try to warm up for uh, the next interview. The next one. Thank you. Thanks. That was great. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.